Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest today is Carolyn Raffensperger. Trained as an archaeologist and as an environmental lawyer, Carolyn is a leading advocate for fundamental changes in law and policy that will be necessary for the protection and restoration of both public health and the Earth's natural environment. She serves as the Executive Director of the Science and Environmental Health Network and has worked for the organization since 1994. Carolyn is co-editor of the book Precautionary Tools for Reshaping Environmental Policy and of Protecting Public Health and the Environment, Implementing the Precautionary Principle. Carolyn has been featured in Gourmet Magazine, The Utney Reader, Yes Magazine, The Sun, Whole Earth, and Scientific American. I am so honored to bring you Carolyn Raffensperger. It's great to have this chance to talk with you. I welcome you to the Living Hero Program. It's a delight to be on it. With all the different pathways our lives could take, what first fired up your passion for change in environmental policy and law? You know, anytime there's a big fire, uh, the logs had to be laid in place and there had to be a, a, you know, a match and there had to be a little wind. And so there are many places to start this story. My father was a surgeon and he was chief of surgery at a large hospital in Chicago. And when I was in my early or mid-teens, my father came home from the hospital and said that he was certain that the childhood tumors and the birth defects that he was seeing were increasing, and he was convinced that it was caused by pollution. And I couldn't really make sense out of that. You know, my experience growing up in a fairly conservative Christian home was that the problem of pain was related to the spiritual realm. But what my father was telling me was that this kind of suffering was actually caused by us. And I I just didn't quite know what to do with it. And so when I said, Dad, you know, you need to do something about it. You need to stop this. And he said, I can't prove it. And that issue of proof became such a an, an issue of who's got power, who's got power to act, and who's got power to act now, um, that it was a, a, a really germinal question for me. Well, that was all fine and good. Uh, I still went down my own path. I became an archaeologist and worked as an archaeologist in the desert southwest. And while I was there, Ronald Reagan appointed a man named James Watt, who is one of the great relics of history. Um, and James Watt was Secretary of the Interior. And Watt wanted to put radioactive waste near Capitol Reef. And I loved Capitol Reef. I loved that whole Utah plateau, the canyon country, the uh, the red rock, the, everything about it was um, a mad love for me. And when James Watt said that we were going to use it as a, a garbage dump for radioactive waste, we still had energy problems even then, I said no. And the question was, what part of no did I understand? I had no idea how to go about stopping something like that. And um, it became a mission, if not a passion. But what's interesting about saying no is that it gets really old. Um, I think anybody who's had a two-year-old or dealt with two-year-olds knows that saying no all day long uh, wears on the spirit. And it wasn't until I learned how to say yes to things around this beautiful and sweet earth that I felt that kind of life-giving energy in my work. 
I'd love to hear more about that. What marked the change from no to yes, and how was that manifested in your work? I had worked for the Sierra Club for about nine years, and um, all of that during all of that time when I was running the office in Chicago, um, I was learning about such critical issues, whether it's national forest management or whether it's um, garbage dumps or more radioactive waste or whether it's about pollinators, whatever the issue is. And almost all of our issues were characterized by trying to block either a government action or a corporation's action. And yet it was a great foundation to understand the science behind most of those issues, begin to come to terms with evolutionary biology, and it was a great education. But the message was still no. It wasn't until I took a job in Washington, D.C., about 15 years ago, that someone asked me a really, really important question. And it's my now uh, president of my board. And he said, what decision-making tools do we have besides this thing called risk assessment? So all of our work before I took that job had to do with assessing the risk that we were faced with and assuming that we could both measure it and then we could manage it. And that has clearly failed. Um, if anybody is following the key environmental issues of our day, we know that global warming is uh, a pressing threat. We know that we have covered every corner of the planet, not that it's flat or square, but we've covered every inch of the planet with toxic chemicals. We are losing species right and left. And so this old idea that we could measure and manage risk has just failed. Um, my entire career up until that point was... Um, assuming that the Earth could assimilate a little bit, what was an acceptable risk, all of those questions that are central to the way that we have made decisions, which is this process called risk management. When my boss asked me what tools we had, I had no idea. It was the only one that anybody had been using. And it wasn't until a graduate student came to me and said he would like to do a participatory dissertation. Would I collaborate on his dissertation? I said, sure. And the reason was I was running a think tank that was addressing how science is used in public health and environmental policy. That's we the were, job in D.C.? That was the job in D.C. It's the organization I now run called the Science and Environmental Health Network. And the assumption when I took that job was if the public just understood the science, if media told a better story, we would do things better. So it was just better communication to the public. It was just getting the media to actually represent the science, and everything would be fine. It was such a naive view. Not, right. Not. Yeah, but we. But the science was so compelling, and we just thought that anybody who was sane, I have a radio personality friend named Caroline Casey, and, and she says that environmentalists are really sane, reverent people. And we just assumed that if people were truly paying attention, if they were awake, if they were sane, and if they were irreverent, they could not possibly ignore the science. But all these decisions based on risk management essentially are designed to protect the economy. The fundamental assumption of risk management and risk assessment is that the economy, the free market, will take care of all the problems. Now, as anybody who's followed the economic crisis knows that's a disastrous assumption. So this young graduate student came to me and said that he had an idea called the precautionary principle. Well, the precautionary principle had been written into a couple of international treaties at that point, 
in about 1994, 1995, it, it was already in the language of international treaties. But we didn't really know what to do with this idea called the precautionary principle. And when I read this young man's dissertation proposal, I knew instantly what we needed to do. We could put on a large conference uh, and figure out how to implement this idea of taking precaution and that this was the answer to my boss's question. This was a tool that we could use instead of risk assessment to make our environmental decisions. So I convened this conference called the Wingspread Conference on the Precautionary Principle, and we came out with a slightly different definition than the one that had been used in international treaties, and we came out with steps to implement it. So, so what is big was that big conference? Pardon? How big was that big conference, just to get a sense of scale? Well, it wasn't big in terms of number of people, but it's been big in terms of impact. We had about 32 people who attended. They were academics, they were farmers, they were environmental activists. They really covered the spectrum uh, field in the environmental world. We even had a key Republican operative um, at our conference. Um, he had been the co-chairman of the body, the international body that made decisions about the Great Lakes, the International Joint Commission. And he saw that the way that we made decisions about the environment were just patently bad. And so he advocated the precautionary principle in his work with this International Joint Commission, uh, and he attended our conference. But the conference really dominates the field of the precautionary principle. So two weeks ago, Lyndhurst, New Jersey, just adopted the precautionary principle, and they explicitly adopted in their law our definition, the wingspread definition of the precautionary principle. So it was, Do you want to really... tell the listeners a little bit more about what that definition includes? Sure. The precautionary principle, you, you can almost understand it from the words themselves. The precautionary principle says when an activity raises threats of harm to human health or the environment, precautionary measures should be taken even if some cause and effect relationships have not been fully established scientifically. What that means is when we have scientific uncertainty and when we have the threat of harm, we should take precautionary action. We should take action to prevent harm, even if we haven't gotten every single uh, zero after the decimal point lined up. So with the history of toxic chemicals and the studies that have been done and the things that have been proven, there's reasonable doubt in favor of taking precautions. Right. That's the way to go. Well, who gets the benefit of the doubt? Right. So do you want the tobacco companies to get the benefit of the doubt, or do you want the baby who's born into a smoker's home to That's get the benefit right. of the doubt. And so it's the same thing with toxic chemicals. As it stands, we wait for the dead bodies. We wait for absolute proof. And proof is very hard to come by when you're doing it with the kind of rigors of science that we have appropriately put into place for many things. Um, the things that you need to prove uh, cause and effect for public health or epidemiology are incredibly rigorous. Um, there's a, there are seven points that you have to actually prove and have nailed down before you can demonstrate that this toxic chemical causes this disease. And in the meantime, we may know with certainty that we have gotten six of those points absolutely, you know, for certain, but the seventh we might not. So, for instance, um, we've known for a long time 
that uh, tobacco caused cancer. We had case-controlled studies. We knew that the more people smoked, the more we got lung cancer. We had really good animal studies. We we had all of this information. Um, and we, if you didn't, if you didn't smoke, you you didn't get lung cancer in nearly the same rates. So we had all of this information. Um, but it was still in the mid '90s that the tobacco companies could stand there with their hands over the hearts, um, testifying before Congress and saying, "We do not believe that tobacco causes lung cancer." Why? Because we didn't know how it caused lung cancer. That was the seventh point that had not been proven, and therefore uh, it had not been fully proved scientifically, even though we had all of this information going back almost 100 years. That's insane. And if we're going to wait to do that on every pesticide, if we're going to wait to do that on every flame retardant, on all of these chemicals that dominate our lives, we've lost our minds. Yes. You're in touch with obviously, the scientific studies that are being done. I mean, you really have your finger on the pulse of that. And what are the most recent reports that you could share with us? One of the problems with the ways that we've been telling this science story is that we've been looking at one chemical at a time. So many of your listeners may have followed the problems of chemicals leaching out of plastics. So you're not using your water bottle, your plastic water bottle, you switch to aluminum or stainless steel, or you should, um, because they, they leach out toxic chemicals, and they're leaching out of baby bottles, and, you know, on and on and on. Um, and so what we did was we waited for the study of this chemical and looked for the specific disease it caused. And we've just released a report on aging and the environment, and this tells a different story. Part of the problem with the way that we told the story of toxic chemicals, for instance, was that we just thought every toxic chemical was an anomaly and had slipped by the fabulous regulatory system, when, in fact, it's the way that we've structured the whole inquiry and then how we tell that story. So this new report on aging in the environment does something completely different. What it does is it looks at two major pathways in your body, one is oxidative stress, and the other is inflammation. And we'll just take inflammation because it's the one that people know better than, say, oxidative stress. Although, um, if you've read about diet, you know that you should eat antioxidants. It's to uh, address the problems of oxidative stress. But inflammation, you know that if you get a scrape on your hand and, and it gets a little infected, it gets red and hot. That's inflammation. And a lot of inflammation happens inside our bodies that we can't see. So cardiovascular disease is often caused by inflammation in our blood vessels and, and things like that. So what this new report demonstrates in the, that we've just released on aging in the environment is that many things lead to both oxidative stress and inflammation. So not enough exercise, a bad diet, um, a diet that is heavy on refined foods, white flour, white sugar, um, processed foods, those sorts of things, toxic chemicals, all lead into oxidative stress and inflammation. And so it, it's like an hourglass shape. Many, many things from stressors, um, those of your listeners who are experiencing economic stress or face poverty or racism or are in a, an abusive relationship, that kind of stress also leads to inflammation and oxidative stress. So it can come through many ways. 
our environment is a complex mix. We are, we are living in a world where our bodies respond to a lot of things that lead to inflammation and oxidative stress. And then they fan back out into um, multiple diseases. So the asthma, and you can hear me coughing a little bit, my asthma is caused by um, some inflammation of my uh, bronchial tubes. Cardiovascular disease, as I mentioned earlier, is caused by this inflammation and oxidative stress. Obesity, diabetes, you go right on down the line. And it includes Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So when you begin to look at problems that are largely environmental, the change in agriculture, the change in our diet, this vast increase in toxic chemicals, and they lead to all of these diseases and ultimately to early onset of Alzheimer's and a much more widespread distribution of Alzheimer's, you can see that we are now faced with numerous preventable diseases. So in this report, uh, they call this cluster of diseases, whether it's asthma, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, the Western disease cluster, that it is a result of how we live our lives. And these are largely environmental issues. So um, that report can be found um, on our website. It was released on the Today Show about a month ago. And it, I hope, is going to change the way that we tell the story. So it's not just the toxic chemical du jour and uh, you go on to the next uh, story the next day and assume that the system is fine. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes a lot of sense, and I think that that's what's been lacking a great deal in our society at large is just a severe lack of common sense about the wisdom of nature and the responses from our own bodies. And this report seems to uphold common sense, I would say, that there are all these different stressors and that different bodies are going to respond to those stressors and express the dis-ease with them in different ways. Common sense would tell us that we just need to remove these obvious stressors and not worry about how they are affecting each individual person with all their individual conditions. We can't wait for proof of cause and effect. But we began this conversation with how to say yes. And this still sounds like how to say no. And um, one of the, the things that we discovered with the precautionary principle is that what you do is you begin a search for um, the best alternative to a harmful activity. So let's say we want to have a transportation system or we want to have an energy system or we want to have products that we can use in the microwave. What are the safest alternatives that we've got to the ones that pose harm? And looking for the best alternative and then choosing it is central to the precautionary principle. We already have methods for doing that built into environmental law. When we do an environmental impact statement under the National Environmental Policy Act, we're required to look for the best alternative. But we're not required to choose it, which is just so ironic. Mm -hmm. But it's a model for saying yes. Yeah, we need to get rid of the stupid things that we're doing in the world and the things that fill our world with toxic chemicals from stem to stern. But this way of searching for the, the greenest alternative, the healthiest alternative, is something that then resolves multiple issues at the same time. We want people to have jobs. 
So Van Jones' idea of building the economy with green jobs, um, the Green for All program, is fabulous. We begin to build in uh, energy-efficient mechanisms into our homes. We look for solar or wind energy, and we create jobs with that, and we get rid of our really nasty fossil fuels. So looking for the best alternative is, is a fine way of implementing the precautionary principle. And another way of, of implementing it is why do we always have to be in the position of saying no? Why is the responsibility on us to do the science, the testing, and then to uh, regulate it? Why shouldn't that be the responsibility of the companies that are making things that are potentially hazardous? Um, and so we reverse the burden of proof, and we put the responsibility back on the corporation or the industry that wants to move something into the market. And this has been incredibly successful in Europe. Europe has adopted a law on chemical policy that says if you don't have the data on your product, you can't release it into the market. No data, no market. Um, so they put the re- responsibility back on the corporation. San Francisco has done something very, very similar. They have a list of preferred materials and products that they buy, and if a company will not give them the data and the information so that they can compare products and choose the best alternative, they won't buy from them. And San Francisco, being both a county and a city, is a very large market. So we're seeing those kinds of solutions, those kinds of ways of saying yes, that really, I think, expand our imaginations and help us solve the problems that emerge in patterns. You know, we've always pitted jobs against the environment. Well, does it have to be that way? Um, or say organic agriculture is not going to feed the world. How do we choose those alternatives, and how do we find ways of solving multiple problems at once? Just backing up slightly, when you were talking about requiring corporations to bear the burden of responsibility, it came to mind that that would entail changing laws governing how corporations are structured. And I'm wondering if that is part of your work and what that would entail and how you're doing on that path. We are not directly dealing with corporate structure. Uh, Many of our friends are, and we believe that it is critically important. We're doing some other work on laws. One is that we're trying to get the precautionary principle put into place as law, and we have been successful at that. But we're developing a whole new strategy around the kinds of rights that you have, not just, you know, what's going on with corporations. But, for instance, I talked about how the environmental decisions are really designed to protect the economy. They're not designed to protect your bodily health and your bodily integrity. And so one of the things that we're working on is granting you the right to a clean and healthy environment. There are a couple of states in the United States, Illinois, for instance, that does grant a right to a clean and healthy environment. But it's a right more like your right to buy a house. Um, You can buy and sell your house. You can actually buy and sell your right to a clean environment. That's what we're doing. In North Dakota, we buy and sell permits all the time to pollute the air. And so your right to a clean environment is not an inalienable right like your right to free speech or your right to practice your religion. I cannot sell you my right to practice my religion. I cannot sell you my right to free speech. Why? Why is government selling our right to a clean environment? So the first thing is that we want to grant an inalienable right uh, to a clean and healthy environment 
to each person. And then we want to extend that right to future generations. Right now, future generations have no standing. They have no rights. And an emerging ethic, an emerging philosophy, coming out of Germany in the 1980s from a man named Hans Jonas, he said the world is so fundamentally different now that we have to take a new ethic, adopt a new ethic than the kind of utilitarian, pragmatic ethic that we've had in the past and take uh, responsibility for future generations. And so I've been working on the law of future generations and um, granting them that right to a clean and healthy environment that's not, for instance, in the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, we need to uh, make sure that that is an absolute universal right that is like your right not to be a slave or not to be tortured. Um, we don't look at child labor uh, and say it would be good for the economy if our seven-year-olds could work full-time. It might be good for the economy, but we're not going to do it. It's the same with the clean environment. So we need to both have that right and give it to future generations. And the kind of thinking that we've been doing around that is it's all fine and good to um, say future generations should have some rights, but how would we do it? And we've been working with Harvard Law School now to develop some legal mechanisms. Imagine this. Imagine your city council or your attorney general or the U.S. Department of Justice designating a legal guardian for future generations who would simply be the voice of future generations. They have a right to representation, and they have a right to a clean and healthy environment. And so when there was a consideration about um, whether a kind of action that you were going to take, um, you're going to buy a park and um, add it to the city or the state's holdings. This is great. You're actually adding an asset of the commons, the things that we share, something that future generations will inherit, sort of like money in the bank. All of the national parks and the rivers um, that we share are part of our, our national or an international commons and commonwealth. And to expand the commonwealth for future generations, to expand the, um, the depth and breadth of the, the health of our air and water, these are all good things. North Dakota, for instance, has fabulous wildlife laws. Um, in every state, the state is the trustee of the common wealth. Uh, wildlife is one of the best examples. Um, you get a, a deer hunting license or a duck hunting license um, because the state is granting you a share of um, our wealth, our, our, the things that, that belong to all of us. Um, and we want to pass those on to future generations. So I'm working out the legal framework for the law of the commons, the law of future generations, the rights of future generations, and your right to a clean and healthy environment. Fantastic, Carolyn. What do you see as the most important, impactful things that we consumers, workers, citizens can be doing now? The first thing is to find something that you love and do all in your power to protect it. We don't need just legal guardians. We need uh, present guardians. Do you love the birds that nest in your backyard? Do you love a certain river? Do you love a certain species of plant? Do you have a pollinator's garden in your yard? 
do you love your neighbor's child and invite her over for cookies? If you set out to protect what you love and pass it on to future generations, you will have done what you can. You will have done something good and wise in the world. Where have you met the greatest opposition to your work, and where have you gotten the most open doors and welcome on your work? What strategies have have worked the best as well? Well, one of the things that came as a surprise is how many businesses, corporations, are actually ahead of governments. I just didn't expect this vast resistance of government. And part of the problem is that most governments see their role, government agencies, as balancing the environment and the economy. They don't see their job as being the trustee of the commonwealth for this generation and future generations. They just see it as this kind of balancing act. And so I've had government agencies tell me that their definition of success is when everybody is unhappy. Well, that's a horrible way to live your life, knowing that what? you made everybody. I don't get that. If, you, if you're trying to balance the environmentalists with the corporation, with a, a chemical manufacturer, and you have come up with a rule, and the environmentalists are unhappy with the rule, and the corporation is unhappy with the rule, the agency thinks they've done a good job. I see. So if they've made the environmentalists happy, they've made the um, corporation even more unhappy, um, and so that wasn't a good balance, which is how they've seen their job. And when I tell governments that that's not their job, their job is to serve as this trustee, not the owner. You know, socialism is the, the state is the owner, but in a democracy, we own the wildlife. We own the air and the water and the seeds of the world. They are the trustees. They're the stewards, the caretakers. They're the ones who are to make sure that it is passed on in as good or better shape than we got it on our behalf. And as soon as you tell them that's your job, what do you think about that? How would you carry that out? Would you see your role as something different um, with that task and assignment? And I've had government officials weep with the idea that they wouldn't judge their lives by everybody being unhappy. And I think the greatest opposition comes not from individual industries, who can fight for you know some things, but the trade associations. So all of the chemical manufacturers get together, and the trade associations are pit bulls um, with rabies, as far as I can tell. So that's where I think we see the roadblocks. But I think the biggest problem is the failure of imagination. We think that the way that we're regulating the environment or protecting the environment is the only way. And I would say that we need a new Ben Franklin project. Ben Franklin invented the library and the fire department and all these wonderful things because he saw a need for it. I would assert that the way that we've been balancing the environment with all the other interests has failed us and will increasingly fail us as we see these diseases just increasing at such a rate that we can't keep up. You know, what will happen if, you know, 60% of the population over the age of 55 has Alzheimer's? Or Parkinson's. That's a recipe for disaster. And so we have to go back into preventing these, into creating a world that is healthy and beautiful, that, as you said earlier, uses our own body's radar for health. And to do that, we need a new imagination for how we are going to live together, how we are going to do business, what we are going to permit in the body politic as well as the human body. And it is that failure of imagination that I think is the biggest roadblock that I've encountered. 
I am so happy you said that. Creativity, stimulating creativity from the ground up, meaning working with kids in the schools and having the arts be much more highly valued in the society is what we want to do so that we can stimulate the imaginations and get some fresh ideas here and be willing to welcome those ideas and implement them. And that's often met with a, a skeptical sideways glance. And I so agree that we need to get together and imagine together. We call it a think tank, but in a sense what we need involves not just the intelligence, the mind, the thinking, but bring that also down into the body wisdom and the wisdom of an awakened heart. This is something that is systemic. We need to see changes in education and in family dynamics where we are nurturing the good and the brilliance of the heart in people rather than just setting them up to try to get ahead and succeed in a system that is toxic and it's really not working in our best interests. Well, I I think that the arts are not just, um, you know, nice things to have uh, in stimulating our right brain activity, but they are essential. Um, all of the stuff that I do um, on law and writing lots of, of words on, you know, black words on white paper, uh, that's all fine and good. But without the storytellers that tell the stories of a guardian who actually, you know, the sentinel, the keeper kinds of guardians. That, I mean, there's so many kinds of guardians. Someone who actually took um, seeds and and uh, germinated them and, and passed on the next generation to uh, another generation of humans or wh- whatever the whatever the stories are, the storytellers, the um, painters that move the heart and integrate heart with mind um, are absolutely essential. And they're essential for a lot of reasons. One is because they do move the imagination into other ways of doing things than the way we've always done them. Um, they are the comfort of the environmentalists uh, like me who have seen so much loss. They they help with the grieving, um, and grieving is essential. They also channel rage um, so that we can be more productive and use it in a wise way rather than a destructive way. And they let people like me know that we're not alone in the world, in this struggle for a clean and healthy environment for all, the children of all species. They tell us how we will love all the children of all species for all time in William McDonough's beautiful words. So I think that the arts have been a neglected partner in the work on the environment. Yes, yes, we have done beautiful Sierra Club calendars. We've got some good music out there. But a full integration of all of the arts, theater, storytelling. We do some uh, subversive uh, uh, storytelling, even using the kinds of words that, that I'm using. Guardian is a juicy, archetypal kind of word for the kind of work that we want to see done in the world. But all of the arts are essential. While you were speaking and using the word seeds, it reminded me that I had wanted to ask you about your view of genetically altered species and seeds in agriculture because I know that you have run an organic farm and that your husband is very involved in the organic farming movement. And I wonder if you could speak to that a bit. 
You know, we so often look at it from an answer uh, from from the human perspective. Um, do we need it to feed the world? Is it safe for humans? And um, I'm going to just stay out of that debate, partly because uh, I want to see every child having enough to eat. I want to see. Um, yeah, I, I I I want I want to uh, I want humans to to uh, have a decent and uh, whole life wherever they live, whoever they are. But I want to speak from the plants perspective. And um, in early in this debate, I had picked up a book, uh, a biology book called uh, Plant Mate Choice. And my position on genetic engineering is that I believe in sex. Um, and, um, you know, we, we call uh, genetic engineering uh, technology. Um, I call it, I, I call it, uh, you know, taking away the rights of sex from plants. Uh, I, I, I think that this is the first time that plants have not been able to refuse our choice of which genes they will take in to their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, they've always been able to uh, not cross, outcross if they chose. They, they've been able to reject our breeding efforts, and they're not able to with this one. Um, so it's complicated. And um, I guess my uh, question to those who support genetic engineering is, are there other alternatives? We do know that there are some alternatives in uh, in the upper Midwest, uh, my husband, Fred Kirshenman, and the Northern Plains Sustainable Agriculture Society created a farmer-scientist breeding project where the farmers and the scientists together breed uh, through traditional ways of breeding and selecting seed from their uh, farms and then breeding them. They've developed some really interesting breeds that do very, very well in the Great Plains and in organic fields so that they are resistant to diseases and to pests and have a good harvest. So I do think that there are alternatives, and following the precautionary principle, that seems like an avenue to explore. What is the vision that you and your colleagues share now for your work going forward so that we can maybe join you in this vision? Ah, it would be that the products that we buy, that the way that we live our lives are expressions of um, another kind of right that I did not talk about, and that is the rights of fraternity. The French Revolution talked about liberty, equality, and fraternity, that we would be able to live in healthy communities of pollinators, of plants, of animals, with each other in a way that strengthened the bonds of, of community and that increased the reciprocal relationship that we gave back to the earth and to each other in equal measure as we take from the earth and each other, that it would be true community. And can we create the laws? Can we do the science that lead us in those directions? So if people would like to look at some of our work, there's one on guardians of the future where you can become a guardian, you can create councils of guardians in your area, and that website is guardiansofthefuture.org. Guardians of the future is one word. Or you can go to our website, the website of the Science and Environmental Health Network, and that is sehn.org. So towards that vision, 
what projects are going to get your focus and your funding dollars in 2009? We're hoping to create an aging institute. And while we are called a think tank, I think of it as a laboratory of ideas, a place where we look for the ideas and the tools that can help us change the direction of the environmental catastrophe. Can we turn the Titanic? And so we're going to be looking at several things with this institute. One is the environmental contributors to healthy aging across the entire arc of life. The second is that we're going to be looking at the economics of aging. You know, right now, most of us are participating in the growth economy uh, so that we can have enough money to retire and not work. And can we have enough money for the health care that's necessary at the end of our lives? What if we really fundamentally rethought the economics of of aging um, so that we were not driving the growth economy, which is chewing up the planet, and so that we treated our elders with some respect? A third aspect of it will be to, to green elder care facilities. Um, we've been part of an organization called Healthcare Without Harm, and we've been trying to eliminate toxic chemicals um, out of uh, healthcare institutions. We've been um, trying to um, get healthy food into hospitals. Now, isn't that a paradox that hospitals were serving terrible food? And schools. Um, I've just been visiting a number of schools, and it's just astonishing since I've been a health food person since I was a teenager, and I haven't really been in schools that much to see what these growing people are eating for lunch every day. It is a travesty. So that we're getting kids with type 2 diabetes when they're so young. We're setting them up for a lifetime of health problems. Fried it's chicken wings dipped in mayonnaise sauce. How's that? Talk about inflammation of the cardiovascular system. There you go. Um, so we want to green, really green, the elder care facilities. Some people may live in a nursing home for 20 or 30 years. They need to be eating something beyond canned green beans. They need to not have toxic cleaning chemicals in those kinds of facilities. We know that just as a baby is more vulnerable to environmental insults than, say, a 40-year-old, an 80-year-old is more vulnerable. Their blood-brain barrier is thinner, and they're much more susceptible to some problems. And the final one is uh, one that might appeal to you, and that is that we want to engage a cultural conversation with the arts around elders. A very wise writer said that elders are our only growing natural resource. And we are not using their wisdom and all of the things that they bring to our culture by virtue of having lived long lives. We're not using them in cross-generational education. We are not getting their stories. And so we would like to engage on a cultural level around aging. Um, I learned just the past week or two about a project called StoryCorps, uh, C-O-R-P-S, Airstream kind of trailer with professional recording equipment. It goes around parks and people can come in with a friend or relative that they know has a story to tell and sit with them and record as the listener for others to hear later have that person tell their story, and this is going into the Library of Congress, and it's turning into quite a big project. Oh, it's a, it's a fabulous project, yeah. Would it be appropriate to tell about the other couple of projects that we're engaged in? Oh, yes, please do. 
um, we do have this whole area of ecological medicine in that um, the Aging and Health Institute will be part of that. But we're looking at all of these multifactorial causes of disease, and our doctor and our staff will be continuing that work. I will be continuing my work on the law of future generations and the law uh, around rights to a healthy and clean environment. And we are involved in a number of other projects on green chemistry and um, cumulative impacts and looking at what both the law and science uh, tells us and where we need to go with both the law and science uh, to develop a truly green chemistry um, and reduce the cumulative impacts of all of our, uh, you know, bad, our, our bad technologies and, and behaviors. So, how are you funded, Carolyn? Um, private donations and foundations. And I think, as every not-for-profit is aware, we are uh, going to be tightening our belts because of the decreased funding on parts of foundations. Many of our foundations have lost millions of dollars in their endowments, and so they'll be giving us less. So if you're inclined, uh, we would love to have your donation. Is there anything else you'd like to add in these last minutes we have together? Just to thank your listeners for participating in this, and if there was anything that you felt more awake and alive when you heard, um, heard me say it because it resonated with something that you know or are doing, follow that follow that thread. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's been really a privilege and a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for the invitation.